Well, that is our prayer this morning, Father, as we grab our Bibles and we turn once again to study your word together, that we would indeed see Christ and we would see him high and lifted up, that we would know him in the power of his resurrection power, that you would use your word to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior, the Sovereign King. Thank you, Father, for the preservation of your word and Thank you for how it is a word that is powerful and it is quick and it, and it works in us and it changes us and it transforms us. So please use this time very well within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I wonder when you look around if you see what I see. It's our sermon title today. Everywhere you look, say it with me. Don't you see people who need Jesus? Thursday afternoon, Bob Iwig and I were uh, in the Winchester Medical Center making a visit. And you can picture it, can't you? Walking down the hallway of a hospital and the doors are open and you're heading down to the room where you want to be. And, and you look in and everywhere you look, you see people who are hurting and, and people who are trying to recover. And I often think as I walk down the hall, there's a story in every room. And I also think this place is full of people who need Jesus. I get back home to the office, fire up my computer, check my email, up comes my Yahoo homepage, and they're suggesting that there's lots of news that I need to know about. And front and center is a color picture of two lesbians holding hands, walking down the red carpet of the latest award ceremony in Hollywood. And I think to myself... Those are people who need Jesus. And then up comes the story of a great Boeing 777 filled with people, over 200 people, and it's gone. It vanishes, and it's over. And I, I look at its country of origin, and I understand what they believe there and what they teach their children. And I think, I wonder, I wonder if that plane, as it plummeted to the ocean, evidently it did. I haven't heard news today. If praying to your ancestors brought any relief, any hope, and I think to myself, that was a plain load of people who need Jesus. Glance over at another news article, and yet again, some punk has found pleasure in punching in the face some pedestrian walking down the street, and I think there's a punk who needs Jesus. I approach later in the week the home of our shut-ins and I sit in the kitchen and visit at the kitchen table and the illness is overwhelming. The news from the doctor is not good and I think to myself, right now, these are people who need Jesus. Last Sunday at missions conference, Ed Weber from Thailand was here. He challenged my heart. He stirred my heart and what a humble servant he seems to be and He sees a need and he works in a country, Thailand. They're Buddhists. They can't name all the gods that they worship. They also worship their ancestors. The statistical probability of an adult coming to Christ in a Buddhist country is just about zero. So they reach out to children and orphans, young girls who are trafficked. Their hearts are broken and they try to point them to the one that they need. They need Jesus. 
My nephew Chris stood here and explained an illustration at their church that they set up in Austin, Texas. A wall 10 feet high and 90 feet long, painted with the names in in a Vietnam Memorial type look of literally thousands of names of people group representing hundreds if not millions of people who've who've been unreached with the gospel because people need Jesus. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We have just a couple of verses that bring this uh, opening section of Matthew to an end. And we're getting ready to step through the threshold and, and enter a specific time of teaching in the ministry of our Lord Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you're ready for it. I don't know if I'm ready for it. I'm warning you, starting next week on the Sermon on the Mount, your life might never be the same. It's just in time, too, because the world's pressing in on me, and I need to be reminded that I am a citizen of another country, and as a citizen of another country with another king, King Jesus, that he's called us to live a whole different way than what this world's trying to press us into. The Sermon on the Mount might take us a while to get through it. I hope you'll be reading it this week, preparing your heart for this sequence of messages. It will profoundly impact you as Jesus calls people to live Outside of this world. But right before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, there's a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And Matthew, and do you remember who he's writing to, right? Matthew is writing to the Jews. And the Jews have the Old Testament. They believe in Moses. They think he's the greatest prophet who ever lived. And Abraham... And they know Isaiah, and they know Jeremiah, and they study the scriptures. And Jews demand a what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Jews demand a a sign. They're looking for a sign. What was the sign that they wanted? They wanted some kind of a signal, some kind of a sign that Messiah has come. The Greeks, oh, they like to just think. They like to impress you with their wisdom and their knowledge and their philosophy and their talking. But Jews studied the scripture. They're looking for a sign. And what Matthew is wanting to show them in this passage before he opens the door on the Sermon on the Mount, and we have an extensive passage of the very words of the teaching of our Lord Jesus to challenge people how to live and to build their lives on a solid rock, not on the sand that sinks in this world. He wants the Jews to know. He wants them to know that Messiah has come and he's given them a sign. You're going to see the sign in here. It's wonders and healings. I'd like to look at this passage through the lens of missions and ministry, and outreach to needy people. Because, say it with me, people need Jesus. Look what Matthew says. He just kind of wraps it up, and he's summarizing probably about a year and a half of our Lord's first part of his three-year public ministry. This is what he says in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, verse 24, throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You've got the picture. It's relatively simple wrap-up of the opening and introductory section of the Gospel of Matthew, which is our longest gospel. We know about his birth. 
We're going to learn later about uh, an incident. In some of the other Gospels, we learned that at age 12, there was a little incident when Jesus went to the temple and he got lost from his parents. Um, they lost him. He didn't lose them. And then it's pretty silent. And now the, at the baptism of John, the public ministry of our Lord begins. And Matthew sums it up with this. And he went all about Galilee. He's called his first apostles. Tom talked about that. Tom Jesson, our missionary, in his message last week, talked about him calling and beginning to call fishers of men and that ultimately we're all full-time fishermen. So what I'd like to do is just look at this passage and I'd like to think about and picture what's happening in the ministry of our Lord through this duration of time. Because he's traveling all over, he's walking, and so it takes time. Months are passing. People's needs are being met. So let's make five observations about the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Let's call it the outreach ministry of our Lord Jesus, because he's always reaching out to people. So when we say outreach, we're talking about going outside the walls of the church, not inside the church where the body of Christ gathers. This is a place for believers in Christ. We don't fully expect people who come in who don't know Christ to really get it. We don't really expect them to come in and understand us. We are a little bit weird. We're a lot weird. We know it, but we're happy about it. Because we don't fit into this world anymore. Now, we want to be loving and friendly to anybody who doesn't know Christ. And, and in fact, Jesus himself, he said, he said, They outsiders will know you, the insiders, by your love. That's supposed to be a distinctive mark of the body of Christ, that we're a loving body. And even if people come in and they don't understand why we sing 600-year-old hymns, maybe some of you don't either, but you'll get it eventually. (laughs) We're building each other up. Now, we're outreach. Five observations about the outreach ministry of our Lord Jesus. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of kingdom, healing every disease. And we notice that he goes all over the place. The first observation that I want you to make is the absence of any invitation. In the outreach ministry of our Lord Jesus, number one, there was no invitation from the people. He just went. There were people. He went. He saw people. He went. He didn't wait for an invitation. Now, one of the things that you need to understand is that he taught in the synagogues. Do you see that? And he was teaching in their synagogues. Almost every Jewish community by this time in the history of Israel had a synagogue. It was their their place of worship. And at the synagogue, they would pray. They worshipped on Saturday. They were trying to keep the law. And so they kept the Sabbath, tried to keep the Sabbath law. Their lives had become quite complicated because of the pressure of the Pharisees. But it was acceptable for traveling rabbi who wandered around the country, some with disciples. Jesus wasn't the only one who was a rabbi and a teacher who had disciples around him. That was somewhat of an acceptable pattern of learning by religious leaders and philosophers of the day. But it was always an open invitation to go to a synagogue and to join in the worship there. And often a guest rabbi would be asked to read the scriptures. John described this, didn't he? When Jesus came in. We had looked at that a couple weeks ago, maybe John chapter 4. And Jesus uh, opened up the scroll and he read from Isaiah. Then he rolls the scroll back up and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. Pretty amazing. He opens up to Isaiah. It talks about the Messiah coming and who that the Messiah is here. And then he says, voila, it's me. Now, wait a minute. You get that? 
You know, and it's, so it's amazing. So Jesus now goes and he keys in on the synagogues. So we also know about that, that these are basically believing people. These are people who believe in one God. These are people who believe in Abraham. They're Jews. They were raised to believe that Moses was the greatest prophet and that they're children of Abraham. Now, they're a little bit confused about a lot of things, but and they also think because they're the children of Abraham, God loves them in a way that he doesn't love the rest of the world. And so we have some clues about the ministry of Jesus in here when he goes to the further reaches of Galilee, Capernaum, Syria, those are Gentile regions, all right? But the Jews think they have a corner on being God's people. And so Jesus goes, and it's without invitation. He approaches them. He knows what they need. They need to know that Messiah has come. The second thing I want you to see is that he didn't really have a defined location. Now, this was not a huge area, maybe 45 miles wide and 70 miles long. But notice the description of the places where Jesus went throughout all of Galilee. And I also want you to kind of picture a compass, north, south, east and west. Galilee would be north, northwest. All right. In verse 23. But then it says that his fame spread, verse 24, throughout all of Syria. That would be north, northeast. And then, and that's a foreign area filled with Gentiles. And they brought him all the sick and so forth. And then it says in verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. That would be east and a region up and down along the Jordan there, east and northeast as well. Decapolis is literally 10 cities, an area of 10 cities. Josephus The Jewish historian that has recorded much history of this area, extra-biblically, says that in this region that we're being described here was some three million people living at that time. And from Jerusalem, now we're heading south again, and Judea, that's in the south, and beyond the Jordan. I take that to be both sides of the Jordan, in the, the east and the west to the south. North, south, east, west. Jesus didn't have a defined location. He covered the country. Why? Because Messiah had come for all people, hadn't he? The third thing that I want to observe from our passage, not only was he ministering there and reaching out to people without an invitation, and I take it that there were times that he drew a crowd. It says that the crowds, great crowds, followed him. So he caused a stir. It says that in verse 25. So there were times when he was speaking outside of synagogues. In fact, when we look at verse 1 of chapter 5, we see that he's going to give the whole, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to do all of this teaching sitting on the side of a hill. And he, he goes up what the Bible calls a mountain, where the, the ground rises there. And he's going to sit on outside and he's going to speak, and the crowds are following him around. Why are they following him around? Because they want to see the next cool miracle. Wouldn't you? How great would that be? So he did not have a defined location. He covered the country. But I want you to see that in his outreach ministry, Jesus had a clear presentation of the gospel. Jesus had something to say, and it was a clear presentation. Notice what it says. He was teaching. It describes two ways that he was teaching, and then a third thing that he did that drew the crowd. Teaching in their synagogues, and then proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then thirdly, this is what drew the crowd, I think, healing every disease and every affliction. The word teaching, we get an English word didactic from it. The idea is there that there's an exchange of information going on. There is a student, there is a teacher, there is a listener, there is an expert on information, and information is being exchanged and gleaned. 
and there's study going on. I picture this being what Jesus did in the synagogues. He sits down. A group is there. They've come to study the Old Testament. They open it to to Exodus, to Leviticus. In Leviticus, what do we have? A picture of Christ. He explains the scripture. No doubt what Jesus did over and over is just show himself from the Old Testament to them from the pages of these scrolls. In Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Psalms, showing that there's another David who's come. And that he's the fulfillment of prophecy. And teaching, and it's didactic. There's a learning process going on. It's calm, it's orderly. You be quiet, you learn. But then it says that he came proclaiming the gospel. The idea there of proclaiming is the word that we get preach from. In fact, if you let your eyes go up to the top of page 17... Verse 17, um, it's page 1028, but verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach. Chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach. There it is. That's a proclamation. That's a strong word. The idea there is, is that um, he has something to say, and it's a, and it's a word uh, with some authority to it. John MacArthur's commentary says, Preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. Did you get that? This proclamation, this preaching, it is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. We're not dialoguing about this now. So Jesus is proclaiming the truths of the kingdom with great authority. And, and didn't they even marvel? Didn't they say, isn't this Joseph? This, isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter's son? How does he speak with such authority? And that's when Jesus was preaching, calling them to repent. You see, his message is given to us in the second part of verse 17. His message was to repent. Turn away from your sin. You're sinful. You cannot stay in this position. You've got to turn. There is a holy God that has to be dealt with. And He's going to deal with you and your sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's with Jewish people. They would have never said the name of God. And so He said, heaven. They understood exactly what He was talking about. Jesus, what they didn't get is that Jesus was the personification of the kingdom of heaven present with them right there. This is a new way of living, a new way of thinking. You have a new king. You're going to be citizens of a new country. So he he was there without an invitation, and yet he ministered strongly. No defined location geographically. A clear presentation, a call to repentance. It's obvious then with, with the healing ministry. Let's let our eyes back up to verse 23 again. The preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Gospel means good news. Here's the good news. There's good news and you need it. Okay? We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Of the kingdom. And then he was what? He was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And this is a day when there's no MRI machines, right? There's no imaging. People had all kinds of pains. I mean, he goes on and describes his fame spread and they brought to him, verse 24, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Uh, A lot of pains represented in the church today. My ankles are bad. My knees are bad. My hips are bad. My neck is bad. Those oppressed by demons, there was much demonic oppression and demon possession. We have stories in our New Testament of, of how demons possess people. Mark chapter 5, the crazy man at Gadaria, so powerful that when they wrapped him with chains, he could just break the chains. He lived up in the tombs, cutting himself with stones. 
sleeping at night alongside of dead bodies tucked away back in cavernous tombs. Crazy man until Jesus comes along. And then his testimony is that of sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Amen? And Christ changes his life. Paralytics. Some guy fell off his donkey, broke his neck. Some guy slipped off a ladder, bashed his tailbone, and his legs don't work anymore. They brought him to Jesus, and Jesus would speak, touch him, an instantaneous healing. By the way, why did Jesus do miracles? Why did Jesus do these miracles? Point number four in our outline is that there was, understandably, widespread fascination. Look what it says. His fame spread, verse 24, and great crowds, verse 25, followed him. There was, understandably so, a widespread fascination with this. People following around the circus act, if nothing else, even if they didn't believe. But number five, and this is where we'll answer the question... Why did Jesus do miracles? Number five is you want to see with all of these miracles and these healings that there was a divine verification. There was divine verification and authentication of his ministry. Who is this? Is this just another guy? No, this is a guy who can take my uncle who fell off his donkey and broke his spine in the middle of his back and we've been carrying around these broken little frail legs for 19 years and we set him down in front of Jesus and bam, his legs work and they're strong and he's got muscle tone. Who is this? Who do you think it is? Has to be the son of God, doesn't it? So no televangelist can do that. And so this is the verification and, and the authentication that this is Messiah. What are the Jews looking for? They're looking for a sign. Here's their sign. The dumb will speak, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. How much more of a sign do you need than that? It's interesting to look in, in uh, right here in... Uh, Matthew chapter 11, flip a couple pages to Matthew chapter 11. And remember, we already talked about this once, how Matthew didn't record the details of the arrest of John the Baptist until he gets to chapter 11. And uh, in chapter 11, Jesus has his disciples gathered. He's been preaching, but John is still in prison. And we have here the, I guess the, the realization that John is a little bit shaken up in his faith. This is John, the baptizer, who in the Jordan baptized Jesus when he revealed himself for his public ministry and the dove comes out of heaven. John witnessed it all. Remember, he didn't want to baptize him at first, but then he said, yeah, let's do it. And he affirmed that this was the Son of God. Now he's in prison. And you know, when you're alone in a dungeon in the dark, can shake your faith, can it? Verse 2 of chapter 11, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. What was he hearing? The dumb, the blind, the lame. He's hearing about these miracles and the crowds. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. They evidently would come and visit him. And they said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see, even John is saying, all right, we better double check this guy. Go ask him to tell me once and for all if he's really the Messiah. Look what Jesus says to, his, to John the Baptist's disciples when they send him back. And Jesus answered, verse 4, and said to them, Go tell John what you hear and what you see. 
The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. There it is. The reason that Jesus did miracles was for his divine verification and authorization. Why did Jesus do miracles? Let me just click some things off really quickly for you to hear them. They were a sign to the Jews. We've already said that. The Jews demand a sign. Later on, by the way, of interest to some of you, is the reality of the fact that later in our New Testament, in the later chapters of the book of Acts, for example, after the churches have been planted, in the pastoral epistles, for example, Apostle Paul, who early in his ministry, in his apostolic authority, could do powerful, profound miracles, much like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a few years, a couple decades, the miracles have faded. Why? You know why the miracles faded out? Because the Jews rejected Jesus, and in a large part, the miracles were assigned specifically to Jews. They reject Jesus, and so Jesus just kind of says, all right, that's it. And so part of their condemnation actually becomes... The fact that they're seeing right there, but they're blind. They can't see the reality of the Messiah being there. And so their hearts are given over to the hardness that they enjoy so much. And God says, there he was. Messiah was right in front of you, doing miracles, doing signs, doing wonders. And you rejected him. So that's it. Now you won't believe. And in fact, Jesus is even going to teach in parables. We'll talk about that when we get there. Jesus is going to teach in parables so that they don't understand. It's part of their condemnation from history past, that their, that their forefathers had, had taken the prophets and stoned them and killed them so that when this prophet, Messiah, comes, they don't even recognize him either, even though he's doing miracles. But when, when, they ask John, when John asks for verification, Jesus says, tell them what you've been seeing. So it's signs. It's a sign to the Jews. It was an authentication of his deity. Nobody else could do this. I think thirdly, The reason Jesus did miracles was that it was an indication of his compassion for people. I've told you stories about being in Malawi, Africa, and our three different times, and you've been so gracious to support these trips and to support our orphans. That's coming up this Wednesday night. And especially the first time I went, the overwhelming reality of the brokenness of people and seeing blind beggars sitting on the street. We don't have that in our culture. We've put together neat, tidy rooms with rows of beds where we store people. In Malawi, they're out on the street and lame people. I remember a man whose legs grew backwards and his elbows bent backwards and he was like a spider man walking on all fours. He had shoes that he put on his hands walking up past the front of the street where we were. It was grotesque, never fixed. In the Bible times, the countryside was littered with these people. They, they had, even the people who were doctoring, much of it was like witch doctoring. The remedy was worse than the disease by the time they got done with them. Remember the woman with the issue of blood that touched Jesus' garment in Mark chapter 5, chapter 6? It said that she had spent all of her money seeking out for doctors, looking for somebody to cure her with their hocus-pocus or well-intentioned medicine whether they were for real or not. These people came around Jesus, and wouldn't you have done that? To have Jesus fix your broken body. He even fixed people who were 
possessed by demons. It says here, look at the word in the ESV. It uses the word in the end of verse 24, epileptics. At the root and derivative of the word there is, is the word that we say lunatic. It means to be moonstruck. He's loony. Has to do with where the moon is and people go crazy. The old timers thought that. People that work in medical institutes tell me it's true. When the moon gets a certain place, everybody starts acting up. They had mental illnesses. Mental illnesses. Physically broken. Spiritually possessed by demons. And Jesus could take care of it all because he had great compassion on the people. A fourth reason why Jesus did miracles is because they were prophesied in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 35 and in Isaiah 61, it was prophesied that Messiah, when he came, would do miracles. So guess what? When Messiah came, he did miracles right according to the scripture. He did miracles because the scripture was true. And because he did miracles, we have a confidence that the scripture is true. How did Jesus heal? He healed instantaneously, complete, whole, with a word, with a touch. He didn't have to go into a long prayer. He didn't have to bang somebody in the head 13 times. And he didn't have to scream in the ear of a deaf, mute person and say, Say, baby! Say, baby! Like some televangelist who's defrauding people of their money. Don't watch it. Don't give money to them. They're of the devil, their father. They're liars, just like their father, the devil. Is Satan. And when he speaks, he speaks lies. Don't give money to televangelists who tell you they can heal. They're defrauding you, and it's not biblical. And I'll tell you something. If they could, they would be right down at the hospital healing people, and everybody would know about it. It would be right out in the open. It wouldn't be behind some building somewhere where they can control the television cameras. And it wouldn't be somebody staggering out of a wheelchair, barely being able to keep their balance, and everybody cheering and clapping like they're healed. When Jesus healed, it was instant, it was complete, it was whole. You went from blindness to 20-20 vision. You went from complete deafness to complete hearing. You went from complete brokenness to complete virile strength and muscular tone. It was complete and whole, and it was instantaneous, and it was always that way. Now, once in a while... He would push people's buttons and he would tell them to do things like, go mix some mud and let's smear it on your eyes. Sometimes Jesus did things like that to test faith and so forth. So what do we get out of a message like this? What do we get from the, what do we get from the modeling of our Lord Jesus in his public ministry here? How do we take a passage like this and apply it to our lives? The reality is that He worked without invitation. He went all over in different locations. He had clear proclamation of the gospel. We can't do miracles, so what do we do about that? I'd like to just point out a couple things, and then we'll go home. What do we get from this? One of the things I get from it is this. Let's stop waiting for an invitation to tell people about Jesus. What are we waiting for? You're waiting for your next-door neighbor to invite you over to coffee to ask you about Jesus? Are you waiting for an invitation to share Christ? You see, we've been pressed into a mindset and an emotional framework and a politically incorrect framework that says, it's really not my place to tell you how to vote or to tell you how to believe in your religion. And nothing could be further from the truth. I don't care about the voting near as much as I care about what you believe. And by the way, let's just talk about that for a second. Why is it that everybody needs Jesus? Why do people need Jesus? 
Why is it that it's my business to go all over the world and tell people about Jesus? Well, for one thing, he commanded it. And we've been commissioned to do that. But I want you to just think in your mind for a minute. The reason is, is because one God created all people everywhere. We didn't come from different sources. We came from one God, and he spoke the worlds into existence. He's the one true God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is a holy God. And he created the whole world, the whole universe, and all people everywhere. One God. Not many gods. One God. And then all these people, all people everywhere have done what? They've offended a holy God. They've sinned. And as in Adam, all die. All people everywhere. Listen, people can get down and they can face a certain direction on the compass and they can pray to a dead prophet. They can even strap explosive to their bodies and think they're going to get 71 virgins when they get to heaven. But it's all wrong. It's false. It's not true. What they need is Jesus. When they blow up into a million bits and pieces, they're going to end up standing before a holy God. He's not going to accept them because there's nothing they can do in and of themselves to enter the presence of their creator forever. Can't do it. They will be expelled from their creator. So the reason we need Jesus is because the Bible's true. There's one God who created all people everywhere. He's a holy God. And all people everywhere who've ever lived on planet Earth since Adam and Eve, all people everywhere, the farthest reaches of the Amazon, up in Wales where they're shepherding sheep, all people everywhere have sinned and offended a holy God. And there's nothing they could do about it until God, out of his love and his kindness, sent Jesus. Jesus Christ to bridge this gap so that this sinner can now come to a holy God walking on the cross as his bridge and he can stand before a holy God and God will accept him into his presence because the righteousness of Christ is his by faith where he's confessed his sin and received the righteous work of Christ completed at the cross and Jesus substituted in and paid the penalty and the demands and met the demands of this holy God. So that's the bottom line. You know why the principal at your school needs Jesus? Because he's lost. You know why the guy who delivers UPS packages needs Jesus? Because that's the only way he can get to God. You know why some naked savage in a jungle somewhere who hasn't heard about Jesus paddling his dugout canoe and shooting parrots out of a tree with bamboo arrows? Because he can only get to God through Jesus. And you can count beads. You can whip yourself and walk on your knees on glass up to Mecca somewhere. You can sit and you can bring bowls of rice to a, to a ceramic fat guy that's on a shelf in your room. It can't get you to God. It can't get you to God. When the airplane's diving down into the ocean and you're praying to your ancestors, it does you no good. The only way you can get to God is Jesus. That's it. Therefore, people need Jesus. So when Jesus went, he didn't wait for an invitation. And he didn't care what location he was in. And he had a clear proclamation. Here I am. And now we're the light. And the world is dark. If you don't believe that, you're asleep. And what people need is Jesus. They don't need offensive little Jesuses walking around. They need loving little Jesuses walking around. They don't need obnoxious people screaming at them like the pastor's been doing to his people here. (laughs) Get a little wound up once in a while. That's why people need Jesus, right? 
people are just doing what they do. They're sinners, and so they sin. I said to my Sunday school class, dogs bark and sinners sin. Don't be surprised. It's their nature. It's what they do. So you've got to have Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can come and turn the lights on. Jesus is the only one who can come and keep the law for you. Jesus is the only one who can come and substitute in your place in the death penalty chair and take your condemnation upon himself and make you a brand new creature in Christ. And it's the same for all people everywhere. You say, what about all these world religions? It's nothing but a deceptive ploy and lies and schemes from the devil himself. That's all it is. He's hated Jesus from the beginning, and that's all he's done is create confusion all over the world. What I just said, most people in our state and our country don't believe at all. They believe that you get to heaven your way, you get to heaven your way, what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me. That is illogical and irrational logic. There cannot be more than one way of truth or it's not truth. Let's pray. Um, Father, we um, need your strength, we need your grace, we need your help. Grow us in our understanding of the gospel. Help us to realize how much people need Jesus everywhere. Help us to cross the street. Have a grin on our face and knock on the door and just ask if we can sit down for a minute and share Christ. Show us how to do this. Encourage our hearts and our minds and help us to begin to not be embarrassed to just tell people what Jesus has done for us. How he changed our lives. How our sin is forgiven. Thank you for your grace and your goodness, Lord. Take these words and take away any confusion. Bring the points home. And help us to be a a church that is growing in its heart for evangelism and outreach and world missions and a church that is too impatient to wait for an invitation to get out there and share Christ. So you work in us. Father, if there's someone here today who needs to cry out to to you and and accept your free gift in Christ, have their sin forgiven, would would you work in them? Open their eyes to truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.